Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and today we're going to talk about Europe's economic sovereignty. This might seem like an abstract event, but every day when you open the newspapers, turn on the television or look at your Twitter feed, you'll see stories about the Iran nuclear deal collapsing the resumption of tensions in the Strait of Hormuz, the battle about whether Huawei should be allowed to operate on 5G systems in different EU member states, or a fuss about whether Italy should sign a memorandum of understanding with China to join its Belt and Road Initiative. All of these are features of the new world that we're living in, a world of geopolitical competition where the economy has become another battleground and where Europeans are struggling to shape their own destiny. To help us make sense of all of this, I'm joined by an all-star cast of experts who are all co-authors of a new paper which the European Council on Foreign Relations is co-publishing with the Bruegel think tank. First up, we have Jean Pizani-Ferry, who is a former director of the Bruegel Think Tank and is currently a fellow there as well as a visiting professor at the European University Institute in Florence. Also from Bruegel, we have Guntram Wolf, who is the director of this uh, esteemed institution. And um, from ECFR, we have Jeremy Shapiro, who is uh, our research director, and uh, myself, Mark Leonard, I'm the director of ECFR. So without further ado, Jean, why don't you tell us what economic sovereignty means to you? Well, uh, as you said, economic sovereignty means um, it's, a, it's a very broad concept. What it uh, used to mean uh, for, for Europe was that we could be masters of our own uh, destiny in a world that was governed by rules. So being sovereign meant, you know, having your public finance in order. That meant, uh, you know, uh, running your own policies um, that meant being able to influence uh, the rules of the game globally, uh, this kind of thing. Uh, now, we need, we need different environment in which economic sovereignty may mean different things. It means being uh, able to respond, uh, possibly to resist uh, investment that are not motivated by you know, profit-making or economic motivation, but that are motivated by more uh, taking control of certain technologies, it means uh, being able to decide on the uh, foreign economic relations uh, without uh, being uh, subject to secondary sanctions that leave you no choice but to cut uh, economic uh, and financial relations with certain countries. It means, uh, you know, you're able to, to maintain uh, the, the type of multilateral, broad-based uh, relationship engagement globally that has characterized uh, Europe. And uh, that may be increasingly difficult to maintain in, in a world dominated by a geopolitical confrontation and a very bilateral approach to international economic relations. So it means all that. Okay. I'm going to come to your colleague at Bruegel, the director of Bruegel, Guntam Wolf, to, to lead us into some of the more specific challenges, the technology challenge, the finance challenge, and the global governance challenges, which you talked about. But maybe before we do that, I could ask Jeremy Shapiro, who's research director at uh, European Council on Foreign Relations, to talk a bit about where this challenge is coming from. In our paper, we focus particularly on China and America, two great powers that are very different. One's an ally 
one is uh, is more of a of a of a of a systemic rival, according to a, a recent European uh, communique from the European Commission. But can you talk about how they challenge us particularly, and how they um, change the the idea of, of Europe's economic sovereignty? Sure. Thanks, Mark. I think that the the essential pr- uh, challenge that the U.S. and China present in this regard is that they don't accept the division between the geopolitical and the economic spheres that Jean just outlined. For the U.S. and China, um, and you can very see, clearly see this in, in both their policies in distinct ways, uh, for them these tools need to be integrated and they're more than willing to use uh, economic tools to try to create geopolitical gains or vice versa to use geopolitical leverage to create uh, economic gains. And so you see this in many different ways. And I think it's important to understand that um, because the U.S. and China have different positions in the world economy and different goals, they use these goals in different ways. So the only thing that really unites them is the fact that they don't see the separation that Europeans often do. So as far as uh, the U.S. is concerned, what it's what it tends to be doing is using the centrality of its currency, the centrality of its financial system to uh, enforce its political preferences on lots of parts of the world. The most prominent example of this is the uh, Iranian nuclear deal in which they uh, use the fact that European companies and other companies need to access the U.S. financial system, need to access the U.S. dollar in order to do, uh, in order to trade with anybody uh, to basically uh, enable them to cut off uh, trade between Iran and Europe, even though the Europeans didn't want to do it. You can also see, especially under the Trump administration, the use of tariffs as a geopolitical tool. So, for example, just a couple of weeks ago, the, the U.S. essentially said to Mexico, if you don't change your immigration policy, we will impose tariffs on you. And what they're essentially doing there is leveraging the size of the U.S. market and the importance of trade with the United States to create a geopolitical effect on Mexico. China has a very distinct approach. What they tend to do is use their uh, financial muscle, uh, particularly their ability to uh, invest and to, uh, and to do an infrastructure development in various countries to create political leverage, which they then are able to potentially use later. We've already seen a little bit of this in Europe where they have used their financial leverage with specific uh, smaller and more vulnerable European states to avoid European condemnation on various human rights issues uh, and particularly to um, avoid the Europeans interfering in the South China Sea dispute that they that recently came before the, um, the international court. So in all of these ways, uh, China and the United States have have been willing to integrate their geopolitical and, and economic tools. But Europe, in part because it is not structured for this, a lot of the international economic powers have been sent to Brussels, but most of the national security and geopolitical powers still stay in the capitals. Uh, and in part because they don't recognize the need to do it, hasn't really responded in kind. Okay, so I think we've got our kind of uh, broad definitions out now. Now, I think the interesting question is is what it means in practice in different areas and what the solutions might be to, to these new kind of challenges. So in our paper, we look at three main domains, the technology domain, the finance domain, and the global governance domain. And maybe, Guntram, you can start 
laying out what you think the kind of main issues and technology are and, and, and we'll spend a few minutes on that and then go through the other domains afterwards. Yes, uh, thank you, Mark. I, I think perhaps the first point I want to make is that uh, we looked quite carefully at what the United States is doing in the technology domain and in other domains. And we think uh, that the US strategy is not the strategy that the European Union should pursue. In particular, the discussion that is currently ongoing in the US of decoupling the economic system as much as possible from uh, China in order to in increase uh, strategic autonomy uh, is not the approach that is desirable for the European Union. And I doubt it's actually desirable for the United States. We know from economic literature very well that um, growth, wealth, innovation comes not from uh, excluding uh, partners, but from interacting and from having strong uh, um, partnerships and co collaboration, including in technology. And I think, I think that's, that's the first message. Now, the second issue is indeed the technology. If you look at the technological leadership, I think there is a clear uh, question, how can the European Union, how can European countries uh, stay ahead of the game? The U.S. approach is increasingly to limit uh, exports of high tech uh, of high of high technology. We don't think that's going to work. It has never worked, even uh, uh, 30, 40 years ago in the Cold War. Technology was spreading to Russia, so I think it's it's basically impossible to really prevent the spread of technology. So instead. What we argue is that there is a significant case for a targeted innovation strategy um, and um, a discussion, of course, of how state aid and how um, competition policy needs to evolve in order to continue to have uh, technological leadership. Uh, the European Union has actually quite a, quite a big problem, which is that um, we don't, uh, uh, as much as the United States or China, control uh, networks. Um, and that is a, a pretty new concept in, in this area, uh, which uh, I think was driven by an influential paper by Farrell and Newman, which is called Weaponized Independence, Interdependence. So the basic idea here is that by controlling a network, a technology network, a data-intensive network. So in, instead of thinking of the Internet as a decentralized system, you control the key hubs of that system. You actually have superior access to information and you can leverage that information access um, also for security and even economic benefits. Now, the European Union is relatively weak in this real, realm. And so I think we need a serious debate and a significant debate on uh, what we can do uh, in order to um, boost our network capacities, our capacity on uh, 5G and, and other areas. And what about um, some of the other elements that we, that we looked at about state aid and competition policy? Does one of you want to come in and explain some of those ideas? Speaking of state aids, the approach we have um, is that there is an international regime, and the international regime is based on the WTO, and it's actually limited to goods, and it's not, let's put it this way, it's not very effective, and it's even much less effective in a situation where the WTO uh, is being challenged by the U.S., and the certain dispute settlement body is uh, at risk of becoming completely ineffective. Uh, now, we have internally uh, in the EU, we have a very uh, strong uh, state aid control regime, that, but that's limited to um, European uh, companies and the way they are subsidized by their own governments. So the question we're facing is 
you know, if we want to have a level, level playing field, we have increasingly to take into account uh, the subsidies that are being provi provided in very different ways to companies, you know, especially Chinese companies, uh, because of the character of this economy and the many ways in which companies can get subsidized through, uh, through credit, through access to uh, resources, uh, through direct subsidies um, in a fairly uh, opaque system. So what we're saying here is that um, if we're serious, uh, we have to take that into account. Uh, we want competition. We, we, we stand for competition. We're not at all in favor uh, of saying, uh, you know, in a world like that, we should emulate the Chinese and start reducing competition and subsidizing our companies and play this kind of game. Uh, we're saying we should uh, stand by our uh, principles, but find ways to enforce much more the level playing field principle using the state aid approach, the state aid uh, monitoring technologies, uh, also vis-a-vis -vis foreign companies and not only vis-a-vis -vis European companies. So obviously uh, by treaty, uh, the powers are limited to the European companies and to uh, the approach that is made to the behavior of, of EU uh, member states. But we have the uh, we have the technology, we have the methodologies for approaching those issues of state aid. We should use them more forcefully for assessing the situation vis-a-vis -vis foreign companies. And the other element we talked about in this was how to think about the security issues. Because if you take Huawei, for example, uh, it's not just the fact that the Chinese market is kind of asymmetrical. There are big security issues which are being raised. Jeremy, do you want to talk a bit about how one could integrate some of those questions into European decision making? Yeah, I think it's very difficult. Uh, the U.S. has a regime, essentially, where it says, where it looks at the security implications of any uh, foreign investment into the United States, including a merger, and essentially says, look, uh, there might be an economic rationale to do this. We want foreign investment in our economy because, uh, you know, we need the money and because it creates greater efficiencies and, uh, and greater um, interdependence, which is all well and good. But what if this foreign investment gives a foreign country access to a certain technology, which is very valuable to us? What if it means that that technology will go abroad and we won't... Um, and we won't we won't any longer have indigenous access to it. Or what if it creates foreign ownership of, a, say, a telecommunications network, which is absolutely central to the functioning of our of our economy? And who can evaluate these non-economic criteria? So essentially, they set up a, a committee to do this, which brings together a lot of the national security elements of the U.S. government with with these economic elements. What we're um, proposing is that something similar happen in, on the European level. There's already been a beginning of this with what they call uh, investment screening, where they're trying to look at some of the national security implications of Chinese investment into Europe. But uh, this is done a bit piecemeal. The European Union doesn't really have any uh, specific competence for this. And it's mostly done at the national level, and some of the countries don't do it at all. Uh, but of course, it's access to the overall EU market. So what we're proposing is that there be a much more considered and European level approach to this problem. Although uh, I think it's important to stress that on a lot of the details, it doesn't make sense to emulate the way that the United States does it, in part because in some ways it's overly restrictive and in part because it's just tailored for U.S. concerns. 
Perhaps, uh, Mark, if you allow me, let me add two, uh, two points uh, to, to this very important discussion. I think one, one important point is, and, and Jeremy mentioned that, is that um, uh, we don't as of yet have a, an, an institution that could take uh, and could make a, a European-wide security assessment because security issues are considered to be national issues. And I think what, what is very clear is by Entering the European uh, single market, um, you have access to, um, uh, no matter which country you enter, you have access to the entire single market. So there is clearly a gap here in the architecture. And so we are saying basically, well, we cannot, uh, going forward, keep it that way. We have to find a way of um, increasing the European level screening. And so what we are basically proposing is, uh, look, if the Commission um, thinks there is an issue, um, it can recommend uh, to the Council, so the Council of Ministers, uh, to actually take a decision now uh, to forbid, for example, an investment into a specific country. Now, that raises lots of questions because um, think of, uh, let's say, the, uh, the port of Piraeus in, in Greece. I mean, uh, uh, suppose that would have been forbidden for whatever reasons from the European level. Well, if I was Greek, um, I would be, would be really annoyed uh, because, you know, I need the money and I need the investment and I need the jobs that it creates. Not least because the EU is forcing you to, to privatize all of these things in order to stay within the, the budget rules. Absolutely. So I, I think uh, on top of it, you have the dimension that these kind of investments anyway in Greece could have happened and uh, uh, coming from, from the EU, um, especially if we had been a little bit more generous um, on on the debt burden of Greece. Now, but that's a different debate. But I think I think still the issue is here: um, what can we do to compensate? And I think what we what we discuss and we discuss it in detail is uh, that we have to think of some sort of an investment fund to compensate. Now, the other big issue that I, I wanted to raise is, is merger control and what to do about merger control. So what do you do when uh, you want to prevent a merger based on security uh, considerations? And so, so currently, we do have um, some uh, exception clauses here, but we don't really have a systematic uh, approach to this. And what we are saying is, well, we basically need at the European level um, someone to look into this when uh, when a merger decision is taken. That cannot be DG Competition because DG Competition is not a security institution. It's an economic institution. So why not uh, uh, have a mechanism where the high representative, so someone who sits in the College of Commissioners, uh, actually has a voice and can uh, raise concerns so that the college reconsiders a certain merger decision because of security reasons. Okay, I think we should move in now into the second domain, which is which, which is huge, and in fact is one of the things which triggered um, uh, a lot of the debates around it, which is the the question of finance. Because what I think is happening in many countries now is a a rethinking of, of how we deal with a financial system that's centered around the dollar um, because the U.S. is increasingly using it to, to pursue its, its national foreign policy priorities rather than just seeing itself as a, as a provider of public goods. Jean, do you want to explain some of the, the issues that we looked at on that? Sure. <clears throat> so the, the, the U.S. dollar is a, is a global currency, and uh, we've known, you know, uh, forever that it's it's the U.S. currency, and that um, you know they, it's managed or in, with a mandate uh, that's uh, U.S. centric. But nevertheless, there was a perception that it was a sort of global public good, 
that uh, you know for efficiency reasons everybody wanted to trade in US dollars and that you could do it you know relatively safely that US would manage it as a sort of a global public good so there would be a balance between the US interest and the global interest but on the whole um, the, the the global dimension would be would be there taken on board by by the US authorities now, what has happened uh, is that um, the U.S. is increasingly being turned into a, an instrument of U.S. power. Um, there is the approach to uh, to the exchange rate, uh, you know, the, by the Trump administration. Uh, but uh, more more importantly, um, there has been the 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 use of the fact that anybody trading in U.S. dollars is considered uh, being subject to U.S. laws. So for the enforcement of sanctions, this hasn't been the only instrument. You know, access to the U.S. financial market is equal in this respect. But using the U.S. dollars puts you uh, under uh, U.S. law, even if um, this uh, U.S. approach is apart from the international consensus on some issues. And again, I'm referring to Iran here. So this has revived the question of uh, what should Europe do in this respect? In a context where it's fairly clear that uh, China is going to accelerate the internationalization of the renminbi, which is far from being an international currency, but could gradually become one. And it's very clear that China is going to draw from what we are going through to conclusion that it should accelerate. Now, the stance in the EU since the start has been, you know, we're doing the euro for domestic purposes. We're happy if other, uh, others uh, use the euro, but we do nothing to encourage it. So nothing to discourage, nothing to encourage. So, so you know, the internationalization of the euro may be a side product of what we're doing internally, but nothing more. Um, we think it's time to change and to review this, this stance and to uh, ask ourselves, is it in our interest that the euro is more widely used in international transactions, um, in our external in, in, uh, economic transaction, as well as in transactions that other countries uh, may want to, to have in, in, in various fields. And we think that basically the answer is yes. Uh, and that this uh, has implications also for the way we approach the internationalization of the, of the euro. What does it require for a currency to become a true international currency? And obviously, we're not speaking here of challenging the dollar, which is going to be uh, remain the dominant currency, but, you know, just playing our role. It requires a deep uh, integrated financial market, and that brings us to the agenda of capital markets union, as it's called in, in, in Europe, you know, having an integrated financial market. Second, it requires um, a safe asset of reference, so that when you're buying euros, you know what you're buying. You're buying some things that represent the euro area. We don't have it. We have German bonds. We have uh, French ratés. Uh, we have, you know, various types of assets. Uh, so the question is uh, creating a single asset, uh, you know, or together with obviously national bonds, but uh, a, a common asset that would be the safe asset for the euro area. There are domestic reasons for that, but there are also external reasons for that. And the third is that banks doing business in euros that are not based in, in, in the EU should be fairly um, uh, sure, it cannot be a certainty, but they, they should you know, have the expectation that in a situation of crisis, <clears throat> if they're solvent and if they need to get access to euro liquidity, they're going to get access to this euro liquidity. Otherwise, it's very hard to do business uh, with a currency if you, if you don't know 
whether you're going to, to get access to, to liquidity. And the, uh, the instrument for that is called swap lines. It's swap lines between the ECB and various uh, central banks, partner central banks in, uh, uh, externally. Um, and those swap lines do not exist at present because extending your swap lines is, is, you know, it's not in the mandate of the ECB. And it has, or it may have some fiscal implication that requires, you know, uh, some internal uh, arrangement so that uh, it's made possible. So we're saying those things should be done. Capital markets union. Second, this should be the creation of a safe asset. And third, uh, the uh, ECB should get prepared in agreement with the, uh, the fiscal authorities uh, to uh, extend swap lines to partner central banks. One other um, area that we looked at in the thing was this question of, of the global financial architecture and, and uh, the kind of uh, fears that Europeans have that if, if the US plays hardball in the IMF or in other uh, Bretton Woods institutions, that we might find that we're not able to, to bail out other countries or to promote financial stability uh -huh. in different areas. Um, and I think we, we've got some ideas about how to use existing EU instruments internationally, whether it's letting the, the ESM, um, the European Stability Mechanism, give assistance to third countries or to rethink the role of development banks in third countries. We have two big famous ones in, in the EU, the European Investment Bank and the EBRD, um, the European uh, Bank for Reconstruction and Development. And there was an idea of maybe turning that into a European Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. But one of the things which is a lot in the news, and I don't know if, if if Guntram or Jeremy wants yeah. to talk about that, is, is this whole question about payment infrastructure, because Iran um, has also just been cut out of, um, of, of, um, of the global market. There's a big fuss about SWIFT, which is the which is a European company. I don't know if one of you wants to talk a bit about that. Thank, thanks, Mark. Indeed, the payment uh, um, discussion is is an important discussion, but I have to say it's also sometimes a bit a bit confused. I mean, let me first of all state that uh, SWIFT is obviously uh, not an American company. Uh, SWIFT is a European company uh, based in Belgium, very close to Brussels. It's supervised by Belgian authorities. And it is a global network, uh, a global public good, uh, which uh, basically transmits information between banks about what kind of payments uh, uh, they they are asked to to do. And so, uh, so this is this is a global public good, and it is under pressure from the United States um, from time to time. Um, and the, the leverage the United States has is basically uh, of, uh, on two dimensions. I mean, one leverage is that SWIFT has a total backup of its system, uh, in, um, which is based in, uh, in the United States. So they can basically directly uh, force and put pressure on the backup of the system. But more importantly, they exercise uh, direct political pressure on um, the top leadership of SWIFT. Um, as well as, um, let's say, the institutions that um, that host SWIFT and, and supervise SWIFT. So going as far as implicitly uh, uh, threatening that if uh, a financial sanction that the U.S. would like to be enforced is not executed by, by SWIFT, the person that would take that kind of a decision in SWIFT uh, 
would be personally uh, liable to uh, U.S. persecution. And so, so this is, um, I think this is the kind of pressure that is being exercised. Having said that, I think when we talk about Iran, I think the issue is much broader than, than SWIFT. The issue here is really that the companies, the European companies um, that do business with Iran, and let me remind you that it's mostly European companies because U.S. companies were never allowed after the Iran deal to really do business with, with Iran. So it's really European companies that do it. Uh, now, all of these European companies or many of these European companies are big multinational companies. And for them to risk uh, being cut off um, the, uh, the U.S. market is just too high to warrant continuing doing business business with Iran. So, so basically, this is less of a payment issue, but it's really an issue of uh, the U.S. using its market size um, to enforce uh, secondary sanctions on uh, European companies. Now, I think if we were serious to trying to really uh, counteract that, I mean, the the current system in stacks, and I, I'm sure Jeremy can talk about this in more, more detail, might not work very well. But but I think at the end of the day, you need a much more stronger political will um, to confront um, the United States uh, on the political pressure. Um, and if you do that, um, then you stand a chance uh, by basically threatening to retaliate to at least have the U.S. reconsider whether it's um, appropriate uh, to try to enforce um, on companies of third countries um, what they think is appropriate policies, uh, which I think is actually a quite an, an illegitimate way of doing it. I mean, the, the U.S. approach is basically to think, well, uh, we we can just do it because we are we are the the biggest country, but I think many many other countries would heavily object to that and basically refer to uh, the United Nations and the existing uh, deal with Iran that is currently not breached by by Iran but breached by um, by the United States. Yeah, I mean, Jeremy, maybe we can come to you also just to wrap up the discussion on this because I think what what Guntram's taking us is that this isn't so much about trying to become autonomous and to build uh, a European system. It's more changing the way that Europeans think about these issues and being willing to uh, to fight back, to deter others from instrumentalizing the global system in order to protect it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, uh, if you look at the way that the Chinese and the Russians are approaching this problem, uh, they seem to be uh, taking the opposite approach, which is saying, okay, well, the payment infrastructure is what gives us vulnerability. And so we're going to create a separate payments infrastructure, which they've been sort of starting to set up in the last four or five years. And, you know, I think uh, it's probably not a good idea even for them to do that. But for the EU, it would be a disaster to do that uh, because it would be a sort of decoupling of the uh, from the international economy that would benefit nobody and actually wouldn't provide them with the benefits that they actually want. Because as Guntram says, this is a political problem uh, and the payments infrastructure doesn't actually matter that much. Uh, and so uh, I think what what we're trying to get at is that this all this attention to SWIFT uh, and to the other elements of the payments infrastructure, which, yes, the U.S. does have some structural control over, doesn't get at the heart of the issue, which is that you have to be willing as a political community to stand up and say, look, 
you have one geopolitical goal, we have another, we're going to have to reach some compromise on that. And we can, you know, we could both hold swift hostage to that if we wanted to, but that wouldn't uh, advantage anybody. So let's think about ways in which we can find a compromise on this. Currently, the EU doesn't negotiate on that kind of level. And if it's not willing to negotiate on that kind of level, if it created an Instex or another SWIFT or three more SWIFTs, it would still have the same problem that it has today. So the first step towards becoming that kind of power, I think, is for the, the European leaders to read our paper, Redefining Europe's Economic Sovereignty, um, which Guntram and Jean Pizani-Ferry and their colleague Elina Rybakova have written together with Jeremy Shapiro and myself. We'll put links up to, to that on our website at www.ecfr.eu. Um, slash podcasts and um, it's also will be available on the, the Bruegel.org uh, website um, but we have one more thing to do on this podcast which is our bookshelf um, segment what's on your bookshelf at the moment um, uh, Guntram? Well the, the book I, I read right now is from Nick, Nick Bostrom Super Intelligence Nick Bostrom is a philosopher from Oxford and he writes about how AI uh, could become a real problem for humanity it's all very much forward-looking, but exciting to read. Yeah, he's one of the scariest people I've ever met, actually. He kind of spends his life thinking about different ways that the world could, be, could come to an end. But what's on your bookshelf, Jeremy? Uh, I'm looking for a bit more of an escape than that, I think. So I've been reading uh, a novel that's by a friend of mine, uh, which is called A London Apprentice, an 18th century romp around decadent Covent Garden which is about uh, a young girl who comes to London in the 18th century and on, on the adventures that she goes through trying to break into the theater. And it's by a friend of mine, Judy Graham, and it's really a great read. Uh, and so I really recommend it. And I've been reading a book by a German journalist who was a longtime correspondent in uh, Beijing called Kai Strittmeier. It's called We've Been Harmonized life in China's surveillance state. And it's about the, the development of a new kind of digital dictatorship in China. Very, very interesting. Boy, all, both of you guys are tough to, you're are really hard on yourselves. You know, maybe we should relax a little bit at night. <laughs> Indeed. Well, thank you very much to, to all of you. It's been a fascinating discussion. So that was the world in 30 minutes. We will put links to all of our publications and the book recommendations on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do give us a review and a rating and let your friends and acquaintances know about it on social media. But for now, from Jean Pizani Ferry, Guntram Wolf, Jeremy Shapiro and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of our podcast is Jonathan Hakenbrosch and our editor is Wiebke Evering.